to minister the word this morning. Good morning. I'd, I'd, really, I'd really like you to sit down. Uh, there's only one person that, wants, that desires and deserves a standing ovation, and that is Jesus Christ. So uh, don't clap me or praise him. Uh, Bernice and I are delighted to be here. My wife's about to stand up and wave at you. Uh, and uh, we got married in uh, 1847, so it's been quite a marriage. We live in Adelaide. We have lived in Queensland at some time in our lives. So, and Adelaide is sort of in the direction of Queensland, so pretty close. We live there. And uh, we pastored a church for a number of years, but uh, last year in a transition handed it over. Uh, We're still based in that church. Our son is one of the uh, pastors on the team, Uh, but we are now free to uh, write and to travel and be involved in missions. We have some uh, big missions investments in Poland, in the Philippines, and in Bolivia. So uh, it's really exciting. You're now listening to a uh, an old age pensioner, so please keep paying your taxes. <laughs> it was in 1967 that uh, our family pioneered this church. Uh, we hired the ambulance hall. I don't know the name of the street. I, I just enrolled at Armadale High School in year 11. We lived in Gosnells and caught the steam train from Gosnells to Armadale, and then there was another station for the school near, from my memory, near a a wood yard or something. And so riding on the steam train, I saw this ambulance hall, and I said to my dad, there's a hall there for hire. And in March 67, uh, six people, my mom, my dad, my brother and I, and two other people, a man called Albert Prince and his daughter, Miss Prince, who, um, who were at the first meeting. And in the evening, because we would always have two meetings on a Sunday, uh, in the evening we had 14 people because the same six came along. But then uh, a man and his wife, whose surname was also Prince, who had five daughters. You'd think after a while there'd be a lot of young guys in the church. But, uh, so that's where the church began. I'm just talking so you can get used to my voice. I, I don't need a translator. You, you understand South Australian? You, you're okay? <laughs> and I'm also getting used to the sound system. So can everybody hear me? And is this microphone falling off my face? Is it, is it okay? So David Bolt is, is, is world famous. Stand up, David. <laughs> David is... Uh, is the illustrator of a couple of children's books that I wrote. I hope you're selling them, mate. I hope you're not just sitting there. I, uh, is this one of your daughters? This is your wife? Hello. Now, I saw your dad here playing. The, is, that, is that you, Stephen? I can't remember the last time I saw you. Uh, let me tell you that it was Stephen Bolt's dad who wrote to my dad in England and said, uh, there are wonderful opportunities to plant churches in, in Western Australia. So it was your dad that wrote to my dad. And then, you know, 50 years later, this guy illustrates my book. So isn't that interesting? There is no clock in this room, and I've been given a time to finish. 
So in about 30 minutes' time, I want someone to say, that is enough, stop, which is a good idea. Now, I was told we were having sweet and sour chicken, and I now hear it's curry. So, so what happened to that? Just change the menu. Uh, okay, so there you go. On the day that Adam sinned, on the day that Eve was deceived, on the day that the serpent thought, I've won. Mankind has joined my rebellion. On that day, God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that says this, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Now that's a fascinating phrase because if we understand uh, human physiology, it is not the woman that produces the seed. You know, the man produces the seed. But God is specifically saying the Redeemer who is coming will not be the product of human intervention, but the one who will bear the Messiah will actually be conceived, will be empowered by the Holy The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And the Old Testament is actually a story of the battle of two seeds between God's seed and the seed of the enemy. And we have so many clashes in the Old Testament. The devil wants to do everything he can to stop the seed, to destroy the reproductive process, and to rob mankind of the promise and the inheritance. And so you have Cain killing Abel. You have Pharaoh instructing that every child, every male child, has to be thrown into the river. And you have so many conflicts. You have people like Haman, who ordered the murder of the Jews. Queen Athalia, who killed all the royal line. You have Jezebel that tries to stop worship of Jehovah. And it's actually a battle of the seeds, of God's promise, of God's seed, and the seed of the enemy. This is truth versus error. This is light versus darkness. This is God versus the enemy. And the wonderful news is that light will always defeat darkness. Come on, encourage me. Let me tell you that truth will always defeat error. And God, when God said it, the seed of the woman will crush her head, it was done. It might be 4,000 years later until it actually happens. But when God speaks, it actually is reality. And then came the day, Galatians 4.4, where it says that uh, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. There's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, born under the law to redeem those who were uh, living under the curse of the law. And Jesus came. He was born, uh, he lived, he was baptized in the Jordan, uh, he went to the wilderness where he overcame the enemy and then began three years of ministry when his words and his works brought light and love and hope and uh, it culminated in the cross, it culminated in that moment. Uh, let me tell you something, Jesus didn't go down to hell to fight the devil, that is fiction. What he did at the cross was that he paid the price in full. 
The Bible says in Colossians 2.15 that Jesus overcame and stripped the devil of his power at the cross. And he went down into hell to lead captivity captive, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven. Oh, the seed of the woman won, victorious, triumphant, undefeatable. But the battle continues. Jesus talks about the seed being the word. Uh, we, we have the wonderful phrase in, Isaiah, in Psalm 126 uh, about, you know, those that go forth bearing precious seed. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, um, 15, 23, it, it says, you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the imperishable and living and enduring word of God. Here is this incredible battle. What, it is, what is it all about? It is all about the reproductive process. It is all about the power of the seed and the promise. And it is all about guarding the inheritance of generations unborn. Now, having said that, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy. Now, now come on, you're going to say to me, Jeremy, you are not preaching from Deuteronomy on a Sunday on Father's Day in our... Come on, come on. You, you can't do this. Here is some amazing verses out of Deuteronomy 25, and this is what it says. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her, and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out of Israel. Now this is the background to the, to the incident when the Sadducees came to Jesus. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and they came up with this convoluted story. What happens if a man marries this woman, he dies, she then marries his brother. He dies, and it ends up, you know, she's got seven. She must have been quite a woman. Seven brothers, one woman, they're all dead. And they say, whose husband will she be? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, you don't understand what eternity is going to be like. But this is where it comes from. That's the law. It's all about the reproductive process. It's all about the seed. It's all about the inheritance of the land so that one family wouldn't control all the land, but the promises through Joshua and through the allocation of land would be theirs forever. It's about the land. It's about the seed. It's about unborn generations. Listen to me very carefully. It is not how well you run your race. It is how well you put the baton of faith in the hands of those who are following. Oh, who said that? David Bolt. Okay. Let's keep reading. However, if the man doesn't want to marry the woman, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Verse 8. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. Come on, guy. Don't you understand? It's not about you just building your own assets. 
It's not about you building your wealth. You've got a responsibility to your brother and to the unborn children that they can have their inheritance. But if he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what is to be done to the, bro- to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. And that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Do you like my boots? These are not made in China. This is not the proceeds of, you know, some sweatshop, you know, in, in, in South America. These are boots. These are rugged boots. Made, handmade in Adelaide. By a company called R.M. Williams. Anybody heard of R.M. Williams? At the end of the sermon, at the end of my message, you've got to say to me, tell me about R.M. Williams. Will somebody do that? Will somebody do that? Because I met the man whose company made the shoe. So here is the setting, and it's actually lived out in the book of Ruth. When Naomi came back from Moab and said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Don't call me pleasantness, call me bitterness. Because I went out full, and the Lord brought me home empty. She was wrong on several counts. Number one, she walked away because of a wrong choice that the family made. And secondly, she hadn't come home empty. She had come home with a Gentile daughter-in-law, also a widow, whose name is Ruth. And so here, here is Naomi and Ruth, two widows, a Jew, a Gentile. How do the widows survive? You you, you see, she has surrendered her inheritance. She's lost her land. She's lost it all. And so uh, the the Jews had this rule. Don't harvest all your crops. Leave the corners growing. And widows and strangers and Gentiles can actually go and glean the corners. And so one day, uh, Ruth comes back and she has got a basket full of... uh, uh, of leftovers, I, I think it was food, some sort of crop. And Naomi says, where did you, barley, where did you get that from? She said, well, I, I, was, I was gleaning in the field of Boaz. And the hairs on the back of Naomi's head stood up because Boaz was a kinsman. Boaz was one of these people who had the rights to be able to take the widow and restore everything that was lost. And so Naomi's heart begins to race. Wow, he is a near kinsman. It's a wonderful story. You know that program, The Farmer Wants a Wife? They got this off Ruth. You know, because here is Boaz, the farmer. You know, he sees this gorgeous Gentile widow and they fall in love and live happily ever after. Now, the wonderful thing is that Boaz was not a one-shoe man. 
there was actually a man who was closer related to Naomi than Boaz. He wanted the land, but he didn't want the lady. He wanted the blessings of building up the assets of the property, but he didn't want to marry this Gentile widow. And so he was one of those one-shoe people that are crippled in life because they're not interested in the reproductive process. They're not interested in claiming the promise. They're not worried about the seed. They don't care about unborn generations. It's only for them. And he chose not to marry her. But Boaz was related, and he was willing, and he was able, and he marries Ruth. And everybody said, whoopee. There is another kinsman redeemer who is related to us, born of a woman, born of flesh, who was willing, not my will, your will be done, and who is able to redeem us. And Jesus is not a one-shoe man. Jesus isn't somebody who will limp through life, but he's got both sandals on. He's got both boots on. That's the Jesus we serve. Excuse me while I put my shoe back on. Don't forget to say to me, tell me about R.M. Williams. Thank God I haven't got a hole in this sock. (laughs) Classy boots, aren't they? 500 bucks. Somebody gave it to me. Is that all right? Now, I want you to fasten your seatbelts. Underneath your seat, there is a life jacket because we're now going to read the scariest and the most rude verse in the Bible. Are you ready? Here we go. If two men are fighting and the wife of them, one of them, comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out, What are you laughing at? It's funny. I don't think for the guy it would be very funny at all. She reaches out and seizes him by his manly parts. Look what it says in 12. Look what it says. Cut off her hand. Show her no mercy. An Egyptian man, good friend of ours, uh, regularly goes to Islamic chat sites to witness to them of the grace of Jesus Christ. And he gets involved in discussions and arguments with with imams and all those sort of people. And one day, one of them said, you think your Jehovah is loving and kind. Have you ever read Deuteronomy 25, 12 about this woman who's got to have her hand cut off? He said, that comes out of the Quran. So the guy turned to it. And then he turned to me and he said, Pastor, what does this mean? I said, I haven't got a faintest idea. But this is so good, I'm going to preach about it one day. You see, what's the Old Testament about? It is about the reproductive process. It is about preserving the seed. It is about claiming the promises for unborn generations. And the hand that damages that 
The hand that damages the promise. The hand that seeks to destroy the process and harm the seed. God says, cut that hand off. What are you talking about, Jeremy? Let me talk to you about this church. I haven't been here for uh, 10 years or, or whatever, maybe five or six. But let me tell you about May, March 1967, when my father, my mother, my brother, and myself planted this church. And uh, my dad was the pastor, my brother was the secretary, I was the treasurer. <laughs> I think the first offering was $12 or something. $12.20 because of the $2 pocket money. That I, anyway. The next month, we hold an outreach meeting in the ambulance hall. Whole weeks of whole week of meeting from uh, it was the preacher was an American evangelist that we'd met in England, and there was a lady who lives in Perth to this day called Greta Arnold. Greta was a nurse, and at that time she was working at the Home of Peace in Mount Lawley. The Home of Peace is a Catholic. Uh, what, what would you call it nowadays? It's like, uh, you know, just getting people comfortable for death. And she, palliative care. She brings to every, every time I go to a church, there would be Greta pushing a lady in a wheelchair. The lady's name was Dorothy Pickersgill, and she was a resident of the Home of Peace. And Dorothy had, a, had a, a, an arm's length problem, list of problems. She had multiple sclerosis. She had calcified bones. Uh, the, the, one of the valves in the heart pumped the blood the wrong way. She was diabetic. Uh, she, she was in there to die. She would have been about 70 years of age. And on a Wednesday night, in the ambulance hall where we started the church, while the preacher was preaching, she was sitting about where you're sitting, sir. And she starts to move her feet. That was unusual. The preacher sees her and says, that lady's trying to move. Greta undid the straps of the wheelchair. And Dorothy Pickersgill, I was there, I was sitting on the same row, got out, out of that wheelchair, walked around the building, and never went into the chair again and was discharged from the home of peace. Everybody else in the home of peace were wheeled out by, by, by funeral directors. But Dorothy Pickersgill walked out. That is the seed of this church. Come, come on, encourage me. You see, this church believes in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that he's an influence. We believe that he is God, the Holy Spirit, and he does miracles and he performs wonders. And let me tell you, in your origins, you know, we believe in miracles. And when somebody says, oh, the miracles are not for today, they're for the Bible days. When people say the Holy Spirit is just an influence, the Holy Spirit just makes you feel good. You know, the, you know the, the gifts of the Spirit stopped with the apostles. When people say those words, they are reaching into the conflict and touching the seed that is the very core of this church. Silence that voice. Cut their hand off. Now, you're in a church today that believes the Bible is the Word of God. We don't believe the Bible contains the Word of God. We don't believe the Bible becomes the Word of God as we read it. 
We actually believe that from Genesis to Revelation, it is the Word of God. Uh, I didn't bring my preaching Bible with me today, but, but my preaching Bible has a cover that says genuine leather. So not only is the Bible genuine, but my cover's genuine. And yet there are voices that say, oh, well, you know, the Bible, it's a good book. And it's got good truths in it. And it's got good morals in it. And the words of Jesus are always helpful to us. And, uh, you know, it's, it's helpful. Let me tell you that any voice that speaks other than what the Bible is, they are reaching in and taking the seed and damaging it. And they are robbing future generations of the power of the word of God. And let that voice be silent. Why? Don't touch the process. Don't damage the seed. Don't steal the inheritance. This church believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You're a good man to have on the front row. What's your name? Gary. Gary. You play cricket for Australia? Not yet. Okay. So, so uh, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that he is God the Son. We believe that he is eternal. He's begotten, not created. You know, when God reveals himself to man, he reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus is the great I Am. He's the third man in the fire. He's the angel of the Lord that appeared to Joshua at Jericho. He's the, he's the voice in the burning bush. He's pictured in Abraham offering Isaac. Oh, the Bible's all about Jesus. And in the beginning was God. And in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And if you're a visitor here today, you need to know something. We are Holy Spirit people. And we are Bible people. And we are Jesus people. Come on, encourage me. I know you're looking for your lunch. but So there are groups. I wouldn't call them churches. There are groups in Perth who would say, well, Jesus is a good man. And he's a great example. And yes, um, he did many wonderful things. But he's one of the prophets. He's just uh, one of the line of, of people that will tell us about God. And when people say those things, they are reaching into the conflict and they're touching the seed. And when you touch the seed, you damage the promise and you steal the inheritance and you stop the reproductive process. And God says, that voice has got to be silenced. That hand that touches the seed has got to be cut off because it's not about us. It's about generations to come. And those people that say those things about Jesus are one shoe people and they limp through life and they can't help anybody. What time is it? How are we going? Because this is my introduction. What time is it? 11 o'clock. Oh, God. hours. So, let me talk to you about grace. You are in a church that believes in the grace of God. What do you mean, Jeremy? It is enough for us that Jesus died and that he died for me. You're in a church today that believes that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all all sin. You're in a church today that believes that when Jesus shouted out on the cross, 
It is finished. That's exactly what he meant. It's done. It's over. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be contributed. Just come as you are. But there are groups in this city that will say to you, oh yes, you've got to believe in Jesus and you've got to be baptized in our church. Oh yes, you can believe in Jesus, but you must have our communion because it's the real communion. There are groups in this church, in this city, who will say, yes, Jesus uh, is the Son of God, but you've got to believe in the prophet Joseph Smith. And if you don't believe in Joseph Smith, you're not going to heaven. There are groups in this city who will sell Watchtower magazines from door to door, and they will tell you that if you want to be saved, you've got to endure to the end and belong to their organization. There are groups in this city that say, yes, it's Jesus, but unless you speak in tongues, you're not going to heaven. Let me tell you, I didn't call any of those churches because I don't think they are churches. I think they're exclusive little groups. But this church believes in grace. It is enough that Jesus died. You don't have to sell Watchtower magazines. Joseph Smith is not the prophet that will take you to God. And, you know, I speak in tongues every day, but I don't speak in tongues to get to heaven. I speak in tongues because I'm going to heaven because Jesus has paid the price. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. And when you hear a preacher preaching legalism, when you hear a preacher preaching rules and laws, let me tell you, that preacher is reaching in and touching the seed. God says, silence that voice. Oh, come on, Jeremy, it's not all by grace. Think about the man on the cross, the dying thief. Now, he makes an incredible statement of faith. He says to a carpenter who has been battered nearly to death, now he's hanging nailed to a cross, and he says to this carpenter, Lord, I know who you are. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The dying thief says, I can see the day when everything's reversed. I can see the day when you're not crowned with thorns, but crowned with glory. I can see the day, not, not when you nail as a criminal, but you're exalted as the king. Oh, will you remember me? Uh, we travel a lot. And the sinner's prayer gets really involved in churches. You know, you've got to pray this long, complicated sinner's prayer. This guy said four words. Lord, re- three. Lord, remember me. And grace saved him. Some people would say, oh, but you've got to be baptized. There's a problem. <laughs> oh, but you've got to go to the new Christians class. I would if I could. <laughs> oh, but you haven't paid your tithes for several years. Well, the man could offer nothing. The, God, the man could bring nothing. All he could offer was his sin. And that's the grace of God. Here's a man who didn't deserve salvation. And God saves him. And if you think you deserved your salvation, I got some news for you. We are saved by grace through faith. 
And in this church, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and we believe in the Word of God and we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and salvation is by grace. I believe in water baptism. I believe that everybody should be baptized. But it's not obligatory for salvation. It follows salvation. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it follows salvation. I believe in coming to church. I am committed to fellowship, but that doesn't make me a Christian. What makes me a Christian is my faith in Jesus Christ. It's simple. You haven't got to study. You haven't got to do a series of courses. Nothing's required. Just believe in Jesus. So what did Jesus say to the man? This day, you'll be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. The power of the seed. This is a worshipping church. I'm going to preach to you from now on, Gary. Yeah, we sing hymns, we sing songs, we raise our hands. For those of us that are young, we might jump, you know, or dance or whatever it is. Worship is very interesting. Because there are so many churches today and so many songs, we have people that go around church to church because they like the worship. Oh, I don't go there because I didn't like the worship. Since when has worship been something that we enjoy? It's not offered to us. It's offered to the Lord. Oh, but I like it when Bill leads. No, no, Mary's the one. She's anointed. And, and you know, Stephen Bolt, he's been playing the, the keyboard since before I was born. And he's got such an elegant touch. He could play Come Together. He could play all those songs from... Remember that? Remember that? That was 1934, Perth Concert Hall, you know, whatever. When you criticize worship, do you know what you're doing? You're reaching in and touching the seed. When you have to give your approval to the volume level or to the style of song, you're criticizing. Listen to me, sir. When you come to church, Worship God with everything within you because your kids are watching. If you want your kids to worship, you've got to be a worshiper. We, we, we went to a church. We went to a church in Sydney. I hated it. It was dark, first of all. Secondly, I didn't like the music. You know, I didn't like the words. didn't like the volume. And I'm thinking, I could never come to this church. And I looked down the row. We were all visiting. Here are our two, two of our granddaughters, uh, 17 and 15. They got their hands raised in worship. They're worshiping God. And I thought to myself, Jeremy, you are an absolute Pharisee. You just like worship that you like. I don't know why we're not singing country and western music. I don't understand why we... You like that as well, do you, Gary? Oh, good, you know, sort of, you know, you pick the fine time to... Is that, is that Hillsong? Listen, when we worship, let's worship with everything within us. You know, when we stand, let's stand on the seats. 
You know, when we, when we jump, let's jump high. You know, do everything within us. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, regardless of who's leading, regardless of songs you're choosing. Hey, God is worthy of our worship. And this is part of the seed of this church. Okay. So let's go back. Let's go back to Ruth. Boaz is faced with a challenge. A Gentile widow. If he takes her, he gets the land and the future. But he has to be a husband to her. They've got to produce a child. It's a big call. But Boaz is absolutely convinced this is the purpose of God for his life. Now, the other relative, there was somebody who had first call on Ruth. He wanted the land. He wanted the blessing. He wanted the inheritance. But he didn't want the lady. What was his name? What was his name? Loser. (laughs) We don't know his name. It's not in the Bible. Because when you live for yourself, when you live for your own interests, when you have no desire for the promise, when you have no desire for the preciousness of the seed, when you have no consideration For the generations who are to follow, your name is forgotten. But Boaz, not only do we know the name of Boaz, we know the name of Boaz and Ruth's first son. He had a fishy name. His name was Salmon. Salmon. (laughs) The second son was called Trout. (laughs) Joking, joking. So, So... Not only do we know the name of their son, we know the name of their grandson. Jesse. Not only do we know the name of the son and the grandson, we know the name of the great-grandson. And the eighth son was called David. And if you look at the, uh, the genealogies in the Bible, you will discover that right in the middle of them is Boaz who married this Gentile Moabitess. But Boaz was interested in the seed. He was interested in the promise. He was interested in the generations yet to come. I don't think that he could see down the, you know, the, the course of history, but God could. And he was looking for a two-shoed man who would guard the promise and claim the inheritance and invest in generations to come. And on this Father's Day, we need men who will wear two shoes. Because if you're wearing one, because all you're interested in is, what's in it for you? What can you gain? What about me? What about my feelings? That was a Hillsong song, wasn't it? What about me? Shannon Knoll. Don't sing, please. Some people sing, what about me? 
Some people go into marriage, what about me? Some fathers live their life, what about me? You know, forget the kids, what about me? And those men walk with one shoe. They're limp, they're lame. That other Hillsong song, that's the one. Everything I do, I do it for you. Is that Darlene Check? Stephen, was that, was that Darlene Check? Give that away. It was Darlene Check. I think it was Brian Adams. Anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> so on this Father's Day, have a look at your feet, guy. Sir. How many shoes are you wearing? Are you in it for yourself? Or are you guiding the seed for your family? Are you guiding your faith so you can pass it on? Are you guiding the inheritance for your sons and your grandsons and your great-grandsons? And the decades that lie ahead, there's a Boaz that's investing in the future. There's a Boaz who will take the Gentile wife. There's a Boaz who will stand two-shoed, firm-footed, standing on the promises, claiming the inheritance. I am unashamed to take this woman. I'm unashamed to be the father of her unborn children. I'm a two-shoe man. So this is what I reckon we should do. I think there's plenty of room at the front of this church. And I think every man that on this Father's Day will say, Jeremy, I choose today to be a man who wears two shoes. To be a man who will believe in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and in worship and in the Word of God and in the the gospel of grace who will lead their children and raise their family in love, building for generations to come. I'm going to be a patriarch and I'm going to stand with two shoes, not limp. So I reckon we need some men who will come and stand at this altar and say, I'm a two-shoe man. Good idea, sir. Somebody has to lead. Father's Day. I'm a two-shoe man. No limping. Not going to be lame. I know who I am. And I know what I am in Jesus. And I'm going to take up my responsibilities as a man and as a father and as a husband. Come on, guys. You know, you, you might need actually to raise one of your feet and say, I'm, I'm wearing two shoes. I'm wearing two shoes today and I'm wearing two shoes tomorrow. And I'm wearing two shoes for the rest of my life. I, I, I'm a father. You, you know, you can be a father naturally and abrogate all of your responsibilities. And you're not a father at all. But hey, these guys, I'm a two-shoe man. Got two shoes? You got shiny shoes. That's very good. Okay, here I am. Some of you ladies, your husbands are standing here. I reckon you should come and stand behind them. Put your hands on their shoulder and say, Honey, I'm in this with you. Maybe, Maybe your father is here daughter or son, you need to come and stand next to them and say, Dad, I'm proud of you and I'm with you. Maybe your brother's here. Come and stand next to him. Come on. 
So here we stand, Lord. We stand in need of grace, and yet we stand in grace. And we stand unashamed of who you are. We believe in you, Jesus. We we don't believe in some nice story at Christmas. We, We believe in Jesus, the Son of God. We believe in Jesus, the Savior of the world. We believe in grace, that the only way to heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. We believe in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're putting our foot down today and we're saying, Jesus, by your grace, I'm going to be a two-shoe man. I'm not going to step back from my responsibilities. I'm going to be the man that you have called me to be. Here I am, Jesus.